Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. There's a huge underground industry of private warfare in the shadows. Nobody in in D.C. sees it because they're all wrapped around conventional warfare. Blast happened in Manbij in northern Syria, according to Turkish news. And we still want a USS Missouri moment with the Taliban or ISIS, like where Japan surrendered on a battleship. That's not going to happen because war has moved on. We look at war like it's pregnancy. You know, the, the situations on those ground, on the ground in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever we go, do not materially improve. And I'm tired of this, and we're losing against low-level enemies. I'm warning you again. Leave immediately. But even an undefeated army can lose. We need a new grand strategy for the 21st century. I believe the new rules of war creates the bedrock for such a strategy. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. Well, forget what you know about wars. Wars of the future will look nothing like the past. And here to talk about the new rules of war is the author, Sean McFate. Sean, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let me just do a real quick read in here and describe you briefly, and then I'm going to have you kind of dig deep both into this book and into your very interesting background. It says you're professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. But what I found interesting is with that academic title, you're a former 82nd Airborne Division paratrooper. Yeah, right? that's right. Yep. All the way, man. That's <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Uh, we also may have crossed paths, at least at the same uh, cities uh, we both lived in. Uh, New England, uh, you were uh, Brown University. Yep. And I lived in Rhode Island, did some radio myself up there. Love New England. Spent a lot of time on Thayer Street, just outside Brown University. But then add to that list Harvard, Kennedy School of Government for Masters, and a PhD from London School of Economics. I mean, you were one smart guy. You live in Washington, D.C., and we're lucky to have you in the studio today. Sean, welcome. Thanks. It's great to be here. A lot said there uh, when you look at that list of schools and all the training you've had, but talk to me about where it all started. How did we go from the Ivy Leagues to Army Strong? Well, you know, I went to Brown, which is sort of a super lefty school, and uh, I decided that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in the Ivory Tower, so I thought, what would be different? Where, where could I go that would I could learn things that you don't learn in school Mm -hmm. and I ended up at Fort Bragg (laughs) and you couldn't get any different than you know the blue-blooded cobblestone streets of New England and Providence Rhode Island Uh, Brown spoken in the same breath as the Cornells and the Stanford's it's an Ivy Leaguer yeah yeah and And so then you just say okay screw it I'm gonna join the army what year was this and 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 what motivated that decision other than you know a new change of scenery so this was 1992 and uh there were two reasons. Like when I was a kid, I never like played GI Joe or anything like that. I was actually quite nerdy, uh, to be you know confessional here. But <laughs> <laughs> but my my grandfather was a vet. He uh, he fought and was shot in the Battle of the Bulge in World War II. Mm. 
He was left for dead by both the Americans and the Germans. His mother got the telegram. He was fished off the battlefield uh, by some nuns and nursed to health. And like many of his generation, he never spoke about the war, ever, to anybody. Wow. But he told me as a young boy, always, that when you get older, you will serve. Whatever you do, you will serve. I don't care. You know, what you do after that is your call, but after college or after high school, you're going to serve. So that was very powerful for me. And after Brown, when my peers are going off to law school and business school and whatever school, I went to the 82nd. Wow. One of the most storied divisions of our military, too. I mean, the 82nd yeah. Airborne, you know. Yeah. Do you still sign things all the way? I don't anymore. I, I do say keep your feet and knees together, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. So I left the army in 2000 thinking that the future was nothing but peacekeeping and I didn't want to do that. You know, I was a door kicker and I didn't want to, you know, the, back in 2000, all we had done was like Bosnia yeah. or Somalia. And like, I was like, that sucks. I don't want to do that. So and if you uh, weren't spec ops or you weren't necessarily on a team that was, yeah. that was involved in those things. Yeah. You may have never even seen some of the incredible work we were doing behind the scenes right well absolutely but to be in like the big army at that point sure you know and but i was lucky in the 82nd because my battalion commander was lieutenant colonel stanley mccrystal the retired four-star general was the commander of u.s and international forces in afghanistan mm. and my brigade commander was a first colonel john abizade and then colonel david petraeus the institutions with which i have experienced the military uh, and the intelligence community. These are organizations that keep their head down. They're going to keep on doing their job. And I have enormous confidence in each of those institutions. Wow. So, and this is before, this is the early 90s, before, you know, they are who they are. And uh, Stanley McChrystal was my military mentor, and he's been a mentor to many young people. And he's an amazing leader, an amazing mentor. These great military mentors of Sean's? actually encouraged him to get out of the military. And the scene he described for me says a lot about why he would go on to write a book about the new rules of modern war. At the time, this was at a drop zone in Sicily drop zone. We had just done a mass attack, a big parachute attack uh, sure. exercise. And we were in the, it was like in this, this, the dawn of that morning. And there was like this, this literally like uh, smoke flares had gone off. It was like this red and purple haziness. And not to sound like, uh, you know, purple haze, but it was like this surreal <laughs> right, moment. Right. And I ran into, of all people, the, the brigade commander on the drop zone. And, uh, and I was like, oh my God, I was a second lieutenant. And uh, he's like, well, how did it go? I told him it went well. And we had this really strange conversation right there in the drop zone about the future of counterinsurgency. This is 10 years before the Iraq invasion. And he said, he told me, that, Petraeus told me like, the army doesn't get it. You need to go out and get, a, get yourself educated, get a PhD. And at that moment, it really, I was crestfallen because I was looking for a career. And uh, Stan McChrystal wrote a recommendation for me. I got into a, to a program, and that's sort of how I ended up in grad school. Now, since that foggy morning in Italy during an army exercise, Sean McFade has gone on to do great things. His previous books, like The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies, and What They Mean for World Order, explain how the privatization of war is changing modern warfare, with some economists even calling it fascinating and disturbing. 
He also writes fiction books based on his own military experiences, including Shadow War and Deep Black, part of the Tom Locke series. But it's his newest book, The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, that had me fascinated. I looked through the notes in the press release, and I saw that the book's broken down into 10 rules. Rules like, conventional war is dead. Technology will not save us. The mercenaries will return. Shadow wars will dominate. With every description, I could see a story behind the headline stories we see every day. So I was curious to ask Sean, what made him write this book now? So this book is not an academic-y, nerdy, wonky book. It's written so that my mother could understand it. It's written for a mass audience. And it's, it's, it's meant so you could read it and not fall asleep, if I've done my job well. So right. it's not, it's, don't think of it as, a, as like some dry, academic, dusty prose. The book I wrote Can this, I first say yeah. thank you? Because that was one of my fears, is that like we get into these sort of policy-driven discussions and it becomes a little bit unrelatable for a guy like me who never, you know, passed E4. No, nobody wants wonk talk at all. So, uh, or think tank talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I wrote this book because I was angry. Uh, I have I have lost a lot of friends in the last fifteen years in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I've seen the U.S. blow trillions of dollars in places that don't care, just money down the drain, and we've seen our national honor tarnished. Meanwhile, we don't achieve anything on the ground. You know, the, the situations on those ground, in the ground in Afghanistan, Iraq, wherever we go, do not materially improve. And I'm tired of this. And we're losing against low-level enemies. So what's the problem? We've got the best military. We've got the best troops. We've got the best technology, the most money. What's the problem? And that's why I wrote this book, to answer that riddle. All right, let's run through some rules. Rule number one, conventional warfare is dead. Yes, so this book will make some heads explode in the Pentagon. But that's probably okay. Preach, preach, brother. What you got? <laughs> so one of the, the reason we're losing, uh, or at least not winning abroad anymore, is because not that we don't have a good military, we have the best military, we lose because of something called strategic atrophy. We lose because we have a, a low strategic IQ. And we're fighting raw wars in the wrong way. And it starts with rule number one, which is, there's no such thing as conventional war anymore. So our, there's a saying that generals always fight the last war, right? Mm. Or at least generals always fight the last successful war. And for, the, for our military, that was World War II. Back in the last time we won a war, the world ran on vacuum tubes. Yet our paradigm, the way we think about war is still ultimately interstate, state and state war, military. It's fighting the Soviets in the fold of gap. And we still want a USS Missouri moment with the Taliban or ISIS, like where Japan surrendered on a battleship. That's not going to happen because wars moved on, but we have not. And this book is a call to arms that we move our, our strategic thinking forward. This is not a vets thing. This is like our national leaders in Washington, D.C. And it's not just generals. It's everybody here. Every, everybody in pay grades much higher than ours. We are still fighting war the old way Yet our adversaries grasp that war has changed, the global environment has changed, it's become more chaotic, it's becoming what I call durable disorder, persistent conflict, entropy, and they are exploiting that for strategic advantage, and we're falling prey to that. So the first rule is, forget what you know, it's, it's like the first rule of ditch digging, or hole digging, stop digging the hole. 
And that's what rule number one is. Conventional war is dead. Let's not try to fight another World War II. Let's not invest in weapons that don't, that are for conventional wars only. Right there, we could probably twist off and go a hundred different directions. Because I'm dying to know, like, I mean, when you say like securing an area where we know an enemy is, right. are we to be doing it differently with different tools? Are we to be using attacking them with YouTube before it gets to confrontation? <laughs> are we to be using drone power to take over the grid where they yeah. are? Are we no longer supposed to be kicking in doors? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. When we think about war, war exists on on at least two levels. One's like the tactical level. That's where our vets are. That's where like you're on the grid square. You control a patch of land. Nobody beats us there. We are unbeatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, our combat overmatch is, is ridiculous. That's not where the problem lies. That's our strength. Our weakness is at the strategic level. It's at, it's at the Washington, D.C. level, of how we conceive wars, how we make a strategy, what weapons do we use. So one of the rules for the new rules of war, there's 10 new rules. One of them is that the best weapons do not fire bullets. So think of it this way. Um, in the old days, when the Soviet Union wanted to send a, a, a message to NATO, they usually used munitions, right? <laughs> or they would have a massive military exercise on the border of East and West Germany, like 150,000 Soviet troops, like Zapod 81, that would scare the out of NATO. Because they were like, well, is this a, just a military exercise, like the Soviets say, or could this be... A real invasion or not ready for it and they and the soviets did this to sort of create turmoil within the european nato alliance yeah, yeah, yeah. now the russians are fighting the new ways of war we're not so what they want to do if, if the kremlin wants to break up the eu and disrupt it what they do is they deliberately bomb civilian centers in syria The blast happened in Manbij in northern Syria. According to Turkish news, ISIS is claiming responsibility for the attack. And now what that does, bombing civilian centers, that's bad enough. But what that does is it creates an avalanche of refugees that, that swamps Europe and creates the Brexit. Creates the rise of right-wing national parties who want to break up the EU. The Soviets would have loved to do that. So the Russians are being more clever. So in the future, in future wars... Victory goes to the cunning and not the strong. And I can see how that plays out because what you just described was the ultimate global chess match. I yeah. do something over here that affects your pawn over here, which then affects that person over there, and then this, uh, the ultimate outcome that I wanted, right. I achieved by totally moving a pawn somewhere else on the board that was seemingly unrelated. Hmm. All right, now, arguably, if we had five hours to do this podcast, I'd go through every single one of these rules because they are fascinating, even in just the paragraph blurb I'm reading. But you've got uh, rule number four is hearts and minds don't matter. Uh, Rule number two, technology will not save us. And you notice I immediately went to like, well, drone technology, that's all we got to do to win wars, right? We just use some kind of new technology and and, and then everybody wins, right? That's right. So when you ask people in Washington about the future of war, most of the time what they say, it looks like World War II with better technology. And if all we need to do is invest in better tech and we can beat any enemy that we confront. This is a big thing in the 1990s here called Revolution of Military Affairs. It's a very wonky term. I could talk about that. But the point is, in the last 70 years of war, there's one thing that stands out. It's that technology does not matter in warfare. Now, if you look at, you know, the... U- the U.S. lost in Vietnam, 
struggled in Iraq and Afghanistan against Luddites, against technological primitives. France struggled in Indochina and Algeria against technological primitives. The, the UK struggled in Palestine and Cyprus, same deal. The Soviets in Afghanistan, same deal. Israel struggles against Hezbollah and Lebanon, same deal. So how is it that like technological primitives, Luddites, can beat high-tech big militaries? Yet we still believe in this fallacy of technology. So, for example, look at the F-35. The F-35 Joint Strike Fighter, the attack bomber of the future. It will assume the air-to-ground attack role for the U.S. military. The most expensive weapon in history. The F-35 program costs $1.5 trillion. That's, we spent more money on the single-seater airplane than Russia's GDP. <laughs> you know? That is... And do you know how many combat missions that flew in two long wars? The F-35 can carry heavy weapons externally for maximum effect. But when a smaller payload is carried internally, it is nearly as stealthy as the vaunted F-117 Nighthawk. Zero. Zero. And the, the worth of any weapon is its utility, is how much it's useful. And yet we're, we're buying more of those. Meanwhile, weapons that work in modern durable disorder are special operations forces, infantry, things like that. They're overdeployed all the time because they work and they cost one fraction of the F-35. And it just shows you our, the lunacy of strategic thinking in Washington, D.C. If you had to point to a cause, is that because of the industrial military complex or i mean is that because there's so many companies that are competing for dollars from capitol hill for their pet projects and we're not focusing on the people and the types of missions it takes to fight these enemies there's two reasons for this one um is that we are fixated on conventional war which prizes like technological conventional weapons like aircraft carriers and we love aircraft carriers but no, they're right. not going to be used to fight in a midway they're going to be used in different ways right um so the other reason though is so one is our, our strategic atrophy the other reason though is that there is the military industrial complex eisenhower warned us about this 50 years ago also teddy roosevelt warned, warned us about this 100 years ago the the connection between business and politics is the the double helix of our dna of our country and that, that makes us want to buy things we ought not want. Even if the military says we don't need an F-22 or an F-35, they still have to fight Congress over that. Um, so mm. there's, a lot of, there's a lot of conflict of interests, and it's hard to, to drain that swamp, as has been said before. Yeah, and it's been said a lot by people on both sides of the aisle. All right, let's get into this next one. There's no such thing as war or peace. So we are taught from a young age where cadets are in basic training or you know, sixth grade social studies that you're either at war or you're at peace. We look at war like it's pregnancy. Yeah. You either are or you aren't. But that's not true. And, um, and we've been through this before. Think of the Cold War. I mean, was that war? Was it a metaphor? You ask people that era, they're like, no, it was a war, right? It was a war. And this idea that there's war or peace now, this is sort of our mindset. And our enemies like China or Russia get right in between that space of war and peace and exploit it for victory in modern durable disorder. So here's an example. So the South China Sea, which is a very strategic spot of water. Mm -hmm. um, China is winning the South China Sea, one island and one ally at a time, and they're not doing it with carrier groups. What they do is they do things that go right up to the brink of war. They'll take an island. Uh, they'll do something. 
And but when they go right to the brink of war, right to where the U.S. might sort of freak out about it, and they stop. But they keep everything they captured. And they're doing this it's sort of gradual incrementalism is how they're winning the South China Sea. They're not doing it with weapons. They're doing it through bravado and cunning. And they're, they're, they're manipulating our own sort of paradigm of war versus peace, where it's really war and peace. War and peace coexist always. It has been that way throughout history. We've been through this before the Cold War. We need to rethink what that means today again. Just a quick Google search of South China Sea reveals videos where they show U.S. pilots flying over what is quote-unquote restricted airspace over the man-made islands he was just referencing. This is a video with over 2 million views from BBC News that was published in August of 2018. It's a routine occurrence for us on these flights. Uh, you know, it happens throughout the flight uh, where they come over and then we just go back with our standard response and it really has no effect on any operations or anything we do. Little Island, Little Island, Little Island. Pretty soon the, that, that strait in the South China Sea where so many of our goods and packages come through of the things we're yep. buying at Walmart every day. Yep. Soon they'll own all that area and the, our, our sea lanes will get smaller and smaller and smaller. Right. And then one day... In their 100-year plan, they could say, you no longer have permission right. to come through here until you pay us. Right. So should we be thinking of, I don't know, stuff to face down on them with and say, yo, quit doing that. We don't have to fight this war with bullets, but right. we're going to say, we see your 100-year plan. It's jacked up. Yes. The answer is we need to get a 100-year plan of our own. We need a grand strategy. A grand strategy unite you know when we when you wage war it's all instruments of power not just the ones that shoot it's not just the military it's also course of diplomacy and trade sanctions and all sorts of things there's a whole uh, palette of tools that we have of, of powerful tools we need to we need a, a grand strategy coalesces that into a coherent whole i mean can you imagine doing a mission in the field and and your battalion commander has a soup sandwich op order that's what we have we have like no grand strategy we're a ship without a rudder China and Russia have a grand strategy. Mm. And we need our, what we used to have one during the Cold War it was called containment. We need a one for today. I talk about it in the book, like what goes into a grand strategy? How does it work? How would you make it work? Mm. But we need, you know, it, what makes it grand is it lasts for like 50 to 100 years, regardless of it's Democrat or Republican or whatever. It, it, it still lasts. And China is playing this game very well. Uh, they have a grand strategy. It's called the Three Warfare Strategy. Amazingly, nobody reads it in this country, much less China experts in Washington, D.C., which <laughs> explains a few things. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that they've done, for example, um, another example of the best weapons don't fire bullets is that they've bought Hollywood. China has bought Hollywood. You cannot make a bad movie about China. All Chinese characters have to be superheroes and no villains. That's very powerful. Think of the last time you saw... A, a movie where China is the villain. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess you don't, right? You don't. So they're always the good guys. And we buy so many products from them, and yeah. they support our economy in such a way with manufacturing that, that they almost seem like a, a partner that you know, is inextractable yes, they from, are. From, our, from our society at this point. But you know, it, it's like negotiation. They always say that the person who has the most power in any negotiation 
is a person who can get up from the table first. And we're now getting to a position where their economy is going to overtake ours in 10 years and everything else that they can get up and leave the table and leave us stranded. So we have to be, not to be alarmist about China because they have a lot of problems too, but we need, to, we need to take this very seriously and we need to think about it not like it's 1945 or 1965, but as it's two, you know, 2050. Mm. All right, let's look at a couple more. Uh, mercenaries will return is one of the rules of war. Yes. So mercenaries are the second oldest profession. They've been around forever. Yet we've, we don't know that because we grew up in an era where there are no mercenaries anywhere. Uh, but this, is, this only happened in 1850 when mercenaries were kind of underground. Now they're resurrecting and they're not going to go away. And so we're seeing mercenaries in Nigeria, in Yemen, uh, Iraq, uh, Syria, Ukraine. Anybody who's rich enough to hire mercenaries can fight a war now for any reason they want. And that's going to change not just warfare, but world order. Did you know that 62 people on the planet own half the world's wealth? 62 people. You can put them all into a bus. And now that there's mercenaries out there, you bet they're going to rent private armies to defend their interests. And some of those mercenaries are ex-SEALs and ex-Green Berets. There's mercenaries operating in Yemen hired by a Middle Eastern monarch to go and kill political opposition. Assassination hit squads. So this is a universal thing. And the reason I know about this is that I used to work in that world. After I left the army, I was, I was a private military contractor for the U.S. government in Africa. And I saw and did things there that you're like, wait a minute, only the CIA or special operations forces should be doing that. No, we're outsourcing that. I helped stop a genocide in Rwanda and Burundi. I helped demobilize and take care of warlords in West Africa. I, I, I raised small armies for U.S. interest. And I discovered out there in the, the shadows of Africa that I was far from alone. There's a huge underground industry of private warfare in the shadows. Nobody in, in D.C. sees it because they're all wrapped around conventional warfare. But this is changing war as we know it because it turns, it turns warfare into eBay. So are we looking at some of these random events when we see our evening news? Uh, soldiers killed in Nigeria. Uh, soldiers killed in Syria. Could these hypothetically be the pawns of some person pulling mercenary strings? It's actually worse than that. It's worse than people know. So about a year ago, um, a group of, of Delta Rangers, Marines, and Green Berets were attacked in eastern Syria by 500 mercenaries. News out of Syria. We're following reports of a car bombing in Syria that has killed U.S. troops. And these mercenaries didn't show up. They're not like lone guys with Kalashnikovs. They showed up with T-72 tanks, artillery, APCs, intelligence. And it took them, the, 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 our very best elite, it took them four hours to beat back 500 mercenaries. And that is with the aid of B-52s, you know, F-15s, F-16s, drones, AC-130 gunships, and uh, you name it. I mean, our very best troops and our very best aviation took four hours to beat back 500 mercenaries. Mm. What happens when they have to face five, you know, 5,000? Know, even an undefeated army can lose. And that's why I wrote this book, is because we don't have to lose. But strate- our, our, our troops are the best, but strategically we need to do better. 
and responding to every little firefight, every little thing that could be just an engagement that somebody behind the scenes is pulling the strings on means that the mercenaries are kind of winning by default because they're constantly keeping us well, the merc- engaged. There's a couple of problems with mercenaries. First of all, they don't want to work themselves out of a job. And we know that like in the Middle Ages when mercenaries were common, like Machiavelli hated mercenaries because they start and elongate wars for profit. So the more mercenaries you have in the world, the more war you're going to have. And it won't end. It'll be more forever wars, more conflict. And we need to get ahead of this rather than get behind it. Also, the, the, here's a scary thing about modern warfare is that we, we live in an information age where plausible deniability is more powerful than firepower. You know, mercenaries offer great plausible deniability. So you can, you can do black flag operations to frame enemies against each other so you get your enemies fighting each other for you. And that is the world that we're entering. Also, in mercenaries fight, now it's like the world of Klaus meets Adam Smith. It's like the world of military strategy blends with economic strategy. Our four stars are not prepared for that. Maybe our CEOs in Wall Street are. We need some sort of hybrid between people who can think like market actors and also think like General Patton. But we don't have that currently, and that's what we need. This sounds like fiction, but it's just not. It's this real. sounds like the actual narrative of a movie I just saw. But <laughs> it, Well, I write novels about it to sort of illustrate it, but the reason I wrote this book to be nonfiction is that people, that's that's a response like this would never happen. I'm like, you know, it's happening right now. Mind-blowing. Rule nine, shadow wars will dominate. Right. So when we think about the future of war right now, if you look at like the, the recent national defense strategy that came out last year, for those who read it, not worth, not worth reading. Okay. <laughs> but those are, for some of us, you really are into this. It really is trying to focus us you know, away from coin and counterterrorism to big, near-peer adversaries like Russia and China. And while I agree those are very dangerous threats, why do we assume that they're going to fight conventionally? Why do we assume they're you know, fighting a conventional war against us? We may already be at war with China and Russia and don't even know that. What war is happening, war is getting sneakier. It's going underground. It's going to the shadows, and we have to go with it. And the things that fight well in the shadows are things that give you plausible deniability. It's, you know, special operations forces. It's, you know, CIA, Special Activities Division, mercenaries, proxy militias, things that we see the Russians and the Chinese are doing very well. And so are the Iranians are all over Syria doing this very well. And yet we're buying more F-35s, you know? The, the, the power of shadow wars is that, you know, they're big armies, conventional armies are like plants. They're strong and they're deeply rooted, but they don't move very well and everybody can see them. You know, guerrilla forces, shadow war forces, they're like vapor. They're everywhere at once. And their defense is, is that you can't hit them. And that's where war is going. And um, we need to get on board with that. And we used to do this in the 50s and 60s. We'd... You know, the CIA got into a lot of trouble, by the way, doing this. But we, sure. we did things in Iran and Guatemala in 53. We've been here before. We know how to do this. Um, our problem, of course, is that we are a democracy. And all of the vets out there, this is what we fight. This is what some die for. And this is what we wish to preserve. The problem is, is that secrets and democracy are not very compatible. And shadow war requires you to fight with great secrecy. And this is something we have to figure out. And add to that our desire or our whatever. We think we have the right to know everything now and need full transparency and full disclosure. And it should be out there on social media. And I need to know about this. Yeah. 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 That's not what the clandestine services had success doing 
Right. And uh, just most recently, what we buried uh, said goodbye to a President George H.W. Bush. Yes. And when he was taking office, uh, or 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 before he actually took office with Reagan, he yeah. had been the director of the CIA. And when he became the director, it was during a period in time when there were congressional inquiries into the activities of the CIA right. because they couldn't stomach the fact that we were doing secretive things. This is the story of a 30-year search by U.S. intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. It was a terrible time. Almost making CIA out to be the bad guy when, in fact, that kind of operation, yeah. you're saying, is our salvation. But that, that was the, the Church Commission, which neutered the agency after that. But, you know, the, the, the good news is, is that we can win. This is not just a bad news story. The, the book, The New Rules of War, lays out 10 rules that allow us to win. We can break the cycle of forever wars. We can also win shadow wars because autocrats like, you know, Putin and Beijing, they are vulnerable. Uh, and there are ways to fight wars against them that strips them of their inner circle, that de- delegitimizes them in front of their people. We just need to be savvier. And the book outlines strategies to win. It's not just problems. There's also solutions. And talk to me. That might be rule number 10, victory. You say victory is? Fungible. 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 So this is a 50-cent word. <laughs> Please <laughs> Economists share. use it all the time. Uh, that's why it's rule number 10. It's the last rule. Fungible means something swappable. So think of like money is fungible. Like a $20 bill can buy you, you know, a couple cups of coffee or can buy you a dinner or maybe a few beers. It's fungible, right? Right, right. So victory is fungible too. When we think about victory now in conventional war, we think about killing more enemy, capturing more territory, flying your flag over their enemy's capital. But that doesn't win anymore. Okay, look at ISIS and Raqqa and Mosul. You know, we've done all that, uh, but they're going to come back, right? That, that doesn't secure victory. So the question is, where is victory found in modern war and future war? And the rule 10 is that victory can mean many things. Victory means, first of all, that did you, uh, did you achieve your war objectives that you set out with? And I don't mean moving the goalposts like we did in Iraq, which we all know about, like the politicians saying, well, earlier we're going to have a Jeffersonian democracy, and then it became like, we're just going to keep the path and then last is like, we're just not going to embarrass ourselves too much. Right. <laughs> and then, and then um, no victory can also mean preventing your enemy from achieving their objectives. Sometimes victory for you just means surviving. So there's many ways and many paths to victory. There's many ways and many paths to loss. We have to be more nimble in how we think about warfare and victory. If we want to win, but I will say one last thing is that, if you cannot, if policymakers cannot articulate what victory looks like, then you cannot build a strategy to achieve it. And that's what policymakers have been doing for 25 years now, saying, go off to Bosnia, go off to Iraq, go off to Afghanistan, and just do good. And then the military gets chewed up and bad things happen. And then we're frustrated. We're all frustrated. We need a grand strategy that defines clearly what victory and defeat look like, as we did in the Cold War. We need a new grand strategy for the 21st century. I believe the new rules of war creates the bedrock for such a strategy. So they're manipulating spaces that are not filled with bullets or battle warriors. They're manipulating spaces. So when you talked about a greater strategy and sometimes manipulating a space so that your adversary can't succeed, that is a victory. Is that in essence what we're seeing from some of these, this social media unrest, this like 
this tendency for Americans now to just yell and scream at each other and confront each other because we're so angry based yeah. on what we're seeing on social media. Are, who's fanning those flames? I think there's a, the, the troll factory in uh, St. Petersburg is, is a source of it. And so there, China has them as well. So yeah, I mean, we have a, it's not just misinformation, it's disinformation. You see this, the Russians did this right before the Brexit poll. Yeah. I talk about this in the book. It's our equivalent of, of what we call bullshit bombs in the Air Force. We drop leaflets yeah, yeah, yeah. on whatever. And I think that's what the normal, what people on the ground view it as bullshit bombs. But ISIS is different because they're saying, like, we're going to behead you when we see you. Um, and, you know, so people are like, holy shit, you know, we're going to get out of here. But um, I think that we are, democracies are vulnerable to strategic influence and manipulation, whereas Beijing and, and Moscow have state-owned TV very hard for us to manipulate I was going to say, is there anything we can do similarly in their backyard? Can we get all up in their cyber business and make people start so, hating their leaders so and one make of the, people start distrusting their cops? Yeah, so what I do is, in this in this book, I actually lay out strategies, and I don't, if we have a lot of time, we can go into it, but there's a lot of things that we could do that we don't do. Uh, one is that we could, uh, we could prop up, obviously, opposition, like we did in the Cold War through Title 50 programs, like through your brother, opposition, we can also use ridicule. Ridicule is very, very powerful. We need to weaponize ridicule. It can go south, but think about, remember when those bombs, like remember when the Danish cartoon had like Muhammad with a bomb in his turban and like the whole Muslim world freaked out? That's oh exactly, gosh, uh, Charlie Hebdo. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so like, now do Muslims freak out when there's, you know, a Muslim suicide bomber killing other Muslims in Iraq, which is double haram, no suicide, no killing other Muslims. They like they don't care about that, but oh my god! If you ridicule the prophet, boom. If you ridicule Putin, boom. If you ridicule what's his name, Zhao, the the Chinese premier, boom. So we need to like weaponize ridicule. That's so anyway. There's lots of there's other ideas. And I'm in here. like basically a special operations ball buster of ridicule. I could yeah. be like right. You should deploy I, you. I, I, <laughs> I will cut you to the bone. I will make yeah. fun of you, yeah. and your mom, and yeah. your mom's mom, and right. your, I mean your whole family. Ain't nobody safe with my ridicule. Right. Right. Exactly. You up. I That's right. You up. So I think I think we need to be. No, it's not polite to do that. But somehow dropping a JDAM is okay. But not like you know yeah. ridiculing leadership or and also there's a lot of things. Autocrats have a lot of vulnerabilities that democracies don't. And that's what we should go after. That's they have jugglers. We should go after the juggler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Sean McFaith, an absolute pleasure, man. The book is The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder. On sale, bookstores, Amazon, everywhere right now. And I'll be damned. This was like a master's class. Um, <laughs> will you come back and share with me your thoughts on, oh, I don't know, like Syria or, uh, you know, how Russia might be actually doing some of these things in our politics right now? Anytime. My pleasure. Even an undefeated army can lose. And that's why I wrote this book, is because we don't have to lose. But strate our, our, our troops are the best, but strategically we need to do better.